Let's go back to a brief recap of what we talked about yesterday. We left off talking about cardiac output. And what is the formula for cardiac output? Heart rate times stroke volume. So heart rate we can measure directly by, or we can measure indirectly by pulse or by auscultation. Stroke volume is a little tougher. Either have to stick a catheter and run it up into the heart, or you can do a, an echocardiogram, or you can do that technique we talked about yesterday, impedance car, uh, cardiography. But it's a little bit tougher to measure that. Now, the, the things that go into heart rate is determined by two, what two things? Sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation. Parasympathetic tells it to slow down. And what's the, what's the nerve? The vagus. And the sympathetic tells it to speed up. The sympathetic comes in form of nervous stimulation and also in the form of a hormone. What hormone? Epinephrine. All right, stroke volume is going to be a little more complicated. It's going to be influenced by three things. What are those three things? Okay, contractility, preload, and afterload. Now, contractility is the amount of the amount of strength with which the heart contracts. That in turn is going to be influenced by two factors. What are the two factors? Stretch, which is going to be determined by the amount of blood in the heart before it contracts, which is also called preload. And it's also going to be influenced by sympathetic stimulation. Again, in the form of nerves with norepinephrine and in the hormone epinephrine. I said norepinephrine first. Norepinephrine and epinephrine. All right. Now, preload is the amount of blood in the heart before it pumps. And that's going to be influenced by a number of things. What's the first thing that's, well, never mind. Let's come, let's go back to here. <laughs> All right. Oh, and cardiac afterload. What is cardiac afterload? Blood pressure. It's the pressure that your heart has to pump against to get blood out of it. All right, so let's talk about the stretch factor. The stretch is defined by Starling's law of the heart. The more stretch, the more contraction. So this is fiber length, which is going to be determined by the amount of blood that's in the heart before it gets pumped out. So you could call this preload on the bottom and then contraction force on the top. So what happens as you go, as you get more blood in the heart, more in diastolic volume, more preload? It's going to contract harder. But what happens here? Starts to come back down and get weaker again. So this is like when you have that uh, pair of underwear that you've had for so long that the elastic wears out. And then now you, you stretch it and it doesn't contract anymore, right? They're your favorites. <laughs> okay. This is what happens when you overstretch the heart muscle. It actually gets weaker. Now, most of us will never get to this point. Who gets to this point? 
patients with heart failure and patients with kidney failure and patients with liver failure. The three overload problems can get to this point because they're overloaded with volume. But most of us will never get to this point. We live somewhere down here. All right, preload. Preload is the stretch applied to the cardiac muscle before contraction. Now, the amount of blood inside the heart is going to create pressure. So sometimes you'll hear preload defined as in-diastolic volume. Sometimes you'll hear it defined as in-diastolic pressure. It's the same thing. The amount of blood in the heart before it contracts at the end of diastole is going to exert pressure. So either way you talk about it, it's still preload. So how does preload affect stroke volume? Say again? Okay, so one way is the more preload, the more contraction, right? The more contraction, the more stroke volume. At the same time, remember when we were talking about with the water bottle? If there's nothing in the water bottle to begin with, no matter how much you squeeze, nothing's coming out, right? So if there's no right. So the less preload, the less stroke volume, because the less blood that's in the heart to begin with, the less can be pumped out. So preload is going to affect stroke volume in how many ways? Two ways. One is by affecting contractility through what, what law? Starling's. Starling's law of the heart. And the other way is if you don't have anything in the pump to pump, you're not going to have much to pump out. Now, the way we control preload, there's two ways. One is by blood volume itself. The more blood volume you have, the more fluid you have in your body available for preload. What can affect that? Dehydration. Dehydration, okay. So what would that do to our preload? Okay, make it less. How else could we influence preload? Okay, if we have edema, where is that blood going? Where's that blood volume going? Out of the blood vessels into tissue. So that's going to affect preload. Okay, and the other one is by veins. So remember how you know, we hung our arms down and the veins started to get engorged? Remember that? Okay, well, if you go back to this slide here. Oh, wait, it's not there yet. If you go back to or go forward to this slide, where's most of our blood in our body? It's in the vein. About 64, 65% is in the veins. 13% is in the arteries and 7% is in your heart itself. So by far, the most of the blood in our body is actually in our veins as we speak. Now, what happens if you get a fight or flight response? Get some sympathetic tone. Boom! What just happened? You didn't see that coming? You guys are really asleep. What just happened to your bodies? Instantly, that epinephrine went... And your venous, your heart pumped faster, and the venous, the veins went, and put, dumped that blood where? From here into your heart. If you start exercising, guess what happens? 
the veins are going to start squeezing and more blood is going to come to your heart. So your body has a reservoir of extra blood volume at any given time that it can use if you need it. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So it would be a small fear level then. Right. Now, this also explains right here why a person can lose a liter of blood and still be alive. Because what happens is as you lose that blood, the veins are going to constrict more and more to try and push more and more of this venous blood into your heart. Eventually, what will happen? Eventually, it won't be able to compensate enough, and then you start to die. And so what's the first thing we will do to correct that? Not give blood. Stop the bleeding and give fluids first. Then once you've corrected the pressure, then you can give blood. Although if you already have the person typed and crossed, you can give blood first. But the problem is it takes a while to do the type and cross. So if a person's on an ambulance, the first thing they give is fluid. All right. So, venous tone and blood volume. Repeat after me. Venous tone, blood volume. Venous tone, blood volume. Now, in our patient who's overloaded, like what kind of patient? Heart failure. All right, so in our heart failure patients, what are the two things that we could do to reduce blood volume or to reduce preload? Okay, we can give them diure diuretics and make them pee it out, reduce the blood volume, or we could give a drug that relaxes venous tone. So more blood will begin to pull in the veins. Sometimes that's called physiologic diuresis. Because you don't have as much blood in the heart anymore, you've reduced preload, but you haven't actually gotten out of the body. Did I just lose you? Because you guys... Okay. Alright, so let's say that our heart failure patient just has too much fluid in all, three of, in all three of these areas. But really, where we're worried about is the heart and the lungs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if, we've, if we venodilate, so instead of being 7% of the blood, it will go down to 4%. But because there's fluid overload, that'll still be a normal amount. So we can either get rid of blood across the whole system using diuretics or we can expand the blood here, which will steal it from here. And that's called venodilation or venous relaxation. Which one is um, Venous dilation is faster. That can happen almost instantly. How would you do that? Nitroglycerin is one way. All right, now things that are not affected by drugs. Skeletal muscle contraction. Remember, we rely on skeletal muscle to bring blood back up to the heart. So you can have a person go on bed rest and that will, that will reduce some of the preload. Also, resistance to flow in veins. This will be something like a thrombus. If you have a blockage in a vein, not as much is going to get back up to the heart. And then right atrial pressure. If you've got a blockage in the right atrium or if you have, well anyway, don't worry about so much this, this one. It's a more complicated subject. But the ones we really want to know about are these two up here. What are the two major ways we influence cardiac preload? 
venous tone and blood volume. Can we make the can we constrict veins to make more blood go into the heart? Yes. yes. What drug would do that? Epinephrine and norepinephrine, which is brand name? Levofed. Okay. Now, the right and the left heart must absolutely must pump exactly the same amount of blood. Why? Fun with math. Yay. Love fun with math. All right. What is the average cardiac output? About five liters per minute. Now, let's imagine that you had a 1% mismatch between the left and the right heart. So let's say that the left heart starts pumping 1% less than the right heart does. What's 1% of five liters? Okay. Are you sure about that? 0 0.05 liters, which is also the same as saying 50 milliliters. Okay. 50, 50 milliliters in how long? One minute. All right. Now, how, where's that extra blood going to stay? Because your left heart's the one that's slacking. It's not pumping enough. It's pumping 50 milliliters less per minute. Where's that blood going to stay? It's going to stay in the lungs. All right. So how long does it take before there's a liter of extra blood in the lungs? What's a liter? A thousand mLs. So if we say a thousand mLs, divide that by 50, we get... 20 minutes. In 20 minutes time, there is a liter of fluid in the lungs. How long will it take for there to be three liters in the lungs? One hour. So a 1% mismatch between the left and the right heart results in death in an hour's time. So when I say that they have to be matched exactly the same, we're not joking. Now, the rule is, because of, this, because of this, if one side of the heart begins to fail, guess what the other side will begin to do also? It will begin to fail also. Between the left and the right heart. So is that likely to happen? Because the other side Well, it does happen, but what will happen is it's, it's usually not 1%. It's usually like, 0.001% difference. So it takes a lot longer to happen. Yes? It would end up in the feet, in the legs. You would have edema on the legs. Yeah. But either way, no matter where you've got the edema, you've got less blood to go in the rest of the body. And that's why you start to get the fluid overload. Right. Well, that would be heart failure. Yeah. Okay. Afterload. Um, afterload is the amount of pressure that your heart has to pump against in order to get blood out of the heart. 
Now, what's the structure that's blocking the door, blocking the way for blood to go out of the heart? The aortic valve on the left side and the pulmonic valve on the right. And so, really, we talk more about the left side because the left has to generate a lot more pressure. So, what is the pressure that's holding the aortic valve shut? Venous. What? What is it that's holding? Let's, let's sketch a heart real quick, like. Because I, I like sketches. I'm no good at drawing, but I thought I could be one day. All right, so here's a heart. Okay, so here we have atria and ventricles. All right, so this would be the left side over here. And so we'll draw, here's the, here's the aortic valve. And here's the aorta. Not to scale, not correct, right? Okay. Now, what is it that's holding this valve shut? blood in here in the in the aorta so it's the blood in the aorta that's holding it shut now can we measure the pressure of blood in the aorta yes, yes but not directly unless we want to be invasive so what do we usually do we measure it in the arm and that's close enough for most of our purposes now out of the two norm numbers what is the no normal number there 120 over 80. Out of that, which of these numbers indicates the pressure the heart has to pump against? It's the 80. So your heart has to pump stronger than 80 millimeters to get out. So as this number goes up, your heart has to pump harder. Now, it is more complicated than that. And unless you want to start reading the smartest book in the world, we'll leave it at that for now. But your heart has to pump enough pressure to overcome the pressure inside the aorta. And we are going to call that blood pressure. Now, so on the slide where it says operation, operationally, afterload means pressure. Blood pressure. What does that mean operationally? Working. It means we can work with it that way. We're going to use it that way. It's a little more complicated, but for our purposes, it'll work. All right, so let's talk about arterial pressure because, after all, afterload equals blood pressure, blood pressure in the arteries. All right, so the formula for mean arterial pressure is cardiac output times total peripheral resistance, or TPR. What is cardiac output again? Heart rate times stroke volume. So mean arterial pressure equals stroke volume times heart rate times total peripheral resistance. This is beginning to get a little circular if you're paying attention to how this works. Now, total peripheral resistance is regulated by dilation or constriction of not arteries, arterioles. 
What's the difference between an artery and an arteriole? Arterioles are smaller. So there you go. Um, it's controlled by a couple of mechanisms. The first one is the autonomic nervous system. And what is the major thing responsible for the constriction of blood vessels? Epinephrine, released by the adrenal glands. So most of our, most of our blood vessels are not innervated, which means nerves don't go to them. Most of them receive their autonomic nervous system message by epinephrine in the blood as a hormone. The next one is the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Well, we've already talked about that a little bit, right? Okay, so what does angiotensin do? Causes vasoconstriction. The kidneys release the renin, which starts the whole process of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And then we have this word local. What does local have to do with it? Okay, so for example, if you get a cut, there are local signals that tell those damaged blood vessels to vasoconstrict. On the other hand, if you're working out, what's going to need lots of blood? Muscles. So the muscles release metabolites and hormones that tell those local blood vessels to dilate. So that's what we mean by local control. It's not, what's the opposite of local? Systemic. All right. Uh, and this is what I just said about epinephrine. It's, it stimulates which receptors? Alpha 1. Now, if your body releases zero epinephrine, you're going to lose about half of the mean arterial pressure. Now, what's mean arterial pressure? What's the normal number? About 80, 85. 85 to 90. So if we lose half of that, what would be a mean arterial pressure of? Like 45 or 50. And that would be known as dead. 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 Yes, dead. That would be a bad day. All right, now control. Something has to control the autonomic system, right? I mean, it doesn't just decide to do these things on its own, does it? Uh, okay, Kim's shaking her head, no. Something has to tell the, the kidneys, so that the adrenal glands, produce epinephrine and norepinephrine. Something has to tell the vagus nerve to fire and slow down the heart. So what that is, is a couple things, but the baroceptor reflex. You guys learned about the name P2, right? No? Yes, maybe? Uh, have, you, have you ever heard the word carotid sinus? Oh. Now, what is a carotid? It's an artery, okay, and some of you are pointing, correct, yes. So, your carotid artery has a sinus. What is a sinus? A space or a gap, a pocket. And in that pocket, is something that's called a baroceptor reflex. Now, what is a barometer? It's a meter that tells pressure. So what do you think a baroreceptor is? A pressure receptor. And sometimes you leave out the re and you just call it a baroceptor, a pressure receptor. 
you have pressure receptors in the carotid sinus and in the aortic arch. Those pressure receptors are going to send a signal up to your brain. In your brain, it's going to get bounced around a couple times. We don't care where. And then it's going to get sent back down to the vagus, through the vagus nerve and tell the vagus nerve to either fire more, which will cause what to the heart rate? It'll decrease it. The more the vagus nerve fires, the slower heart rate goes. Or it will tell the vagus nerve to fire less often, which will cause the heart rate to speed up. At the same time, it will also send signals to, the, to your adrenal glands, telling it to do the opposite of whatever the vagus nerve is doing. So if the vagus nerve is being told fire more often, what's it going to tell the kidneys, the, the adrenal glands to do? To produce less epinephrine. If it's telling the vagus nerve to fire less often, what's it going to tell the adrenal glands to do? Produce more epinephrine. So they're always opposite one another. Now, there is something called baroceptor resetting. Now, we talked, we talked about this before, but how many of you like to listen to loud music in your car? Come on, raise your hand. I know there's more of you. Okay, now, have you ever parked your car, gone about your day, a couple hours later, you come back and you turn your car on, you're like, whoa, that was loud. Your ears had gotten used to that loud music and they had reset their volume. Same thing can happen in high blood pressure. Is the baroceptors get used to that high blood pressure. So then if the blood pressure goes back down to normal, it's going to report that to the brain as abnormally low. So what's happened is your baroceptors can get reset and used to high blood pressure. So what happens when you, uh, when you get low blood pressure? Say you stand up too quickly. You get dizzy. So what happens to these patients is at 180, like they're like 180 over 100, they feel fine. You lower their blood pressure down to 140 over 90, that's still high, right? But their body interprets it as low and they start getting dizzy because their body doesn't know that that's wrong. It can eventually reset downwards, but you've got to, if they've, if they've been that way for a long time, especially elderly patients, you've got to bring their blood pressure down really slow or they'll get dizzy. But that's normal for them the it's not normal for them. It's usual for them. It can possibly be unhealthy depending on what, you know, if they fall because of it. Okay. And there's other reasons we'll talk about later. 